0: Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host Gwen McCaslin for this discipleship series and we are, uh, I don't even know how to put it. We're halfway through the Old Testament. We are at the tail end of what is considered the historical books. There were 12 of those. We had Joshua Judges, Ruth. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther will be the ones that are considered historical books. And after that, we will be heading into the prophets. Actually, we've got some poetry and wisdom literature to do too. Um, I don't know. I'll consider our order for that. But uh, for the most part, it probably makes more sense for us to head into the prophets and then come back to some of the poetry and wisdom literature just because we are already laying out our timelines. So I might do those a little bit out of sync. So anyway, uh, that said, let's refresh our brains on Ezra and Nehemiah. Particularly, we're going to focus on Nehemiah today. Now, I want you to remember um, a lot of these Old Testament books were written as one continuous book. But, you know, like, for example, Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, they were split into two because you couldn't carry the scroll. it was so long so just for the sake of they looked for the natural the natural breakpoint and it happened to be uh for at least Samuel and Kings um it happened to be in between kings, um, and the rise of one and the fall of another and so on and so forth. So, and so they kind of made a logical division at that point. Now with Ezra and Nehemiah, they were actually written as one continuous book too by the scribe Ezra, um, who was a direct descendant of, from last week. Oh, Aaron, very good. Some of you remember that. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Just playing around this morning. Um. But in any case, I, I want you guys to understand that um, these are overlapping stories. And so, um, and these form the history timeline that all of those prophets Jeremiah, Malachi, um, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah all of those fit on this timeline somewhere. Um, and so, um, most of them actually were a little bit earlier than this because a lot of them wrote right before or during uh the exile um and so a lot of them talk about the desolation of the temple of israel of that kind of thing so in any case um let's pick up with a reminder the who what when where and why. um it was written by estra ezra it is the history of the reconstruction specifically um, nehemiah of the rebuilding of the walls of jerusalem the outline for the book of Nehemiah um, for chapters one and two we have Nehemiah returning um, and Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king um, and so you know he had a position of authority and the king noticed the king noticed uh, his mood one day and started asking him what was going on um, and so Nehemiah had heard about... Um, he had heard about the remnant that was left and his, I think God was just burdening his heart. And so he started praying about, you know, just about restoring and, and going home and all of those things. And so in chapter two, it uh, it, it basically said, "Now I had not been in, um, been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why is your face sad? Although you're not sick, this is nothing um, but sadness of the heart I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's tomb lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said, what would, your, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And you can see like in real time, that's one of the things I love about some of these books is that these are just real human people. They're scared to death. You know, they're, they're like standing there going, I'm going <laughs> to... You know, they they are flawed human beings in their zeal and in their excitement. They don't always make the best call. They don't always go, God, what do you want me to do? Um, sometimes they just grab a plan and they go for it and they hope that God's leading and guiding and, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, just understand these are this is us. I mean, but for God, this would have been me standing there. Well, as a woman, maybe not, but you you get what I mean. Like this is just an ordinary man standing before a king. And so he he throws a prayer to heaven in verse 4, and he said, um, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servants found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my fathers that I might rebuild it. Now, I honestly have to chuckle at this point. I'm like, does a cupbearer really have the skills and tools and knowledge to rebuild? I don't know. But I mean, he he must be pretty confident he can at least lead it. Verse 6 says, "The king said to me with the queen sitting beside them, How long will your journey be, and when will you come back?" So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleases you, let letters be given for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter... um, To the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the lumber and the beams for the beams that I need for the gates and so he's he's kind of got a plan in mind already and the king grants them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me Uh, verse 9 when I came to the governor's and gave them the king's letters now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen so he literally had also protection to kind of add to his credibility but those letters would have given him free passage through places free access to whatever resources he would have needed to to, for a cupbearer to be entrusted with that level of authority from a king um, that's pretty beyond what anybody would would even ask or imagine I mean that's that's pretty incredible actually and so you see him head to Jerusalem anyway I I want you guys to just understand these are ordinary everyday men Um, who've ended up in positions of power. But honestly, how powerful is a (laughs) cupbearer? I mean, he's beside the king. He hears everything going on. So he had to have been a man who could be trusted. Um, He had to have been one that proved his faithfulness and his loyalty and um, probably his attention to detail and so on and so forth. And I would imagine as cupbearer, he was over a whole lot of responsibility within the house of the king. Um, But at the same time that's a little different than building fortified gates and walls and stuff like that like just a little bit different so you have to just kind of wonder a little bit but you know god uses who he uses and who knows maybe his dad was a carpenter and uh you know a a skilled mason who knows um in any case uh, that's kind of the set, the beginning of this. So we see Nehemiah returning. Okay, chapter three is rebuilding of those walls, um, organizing crews of people and, and the materials needed and all of those things in, in order to do it. Four through seven, There, I I talked about this last week in uh, when we talked about Ezra that the no matter what you're doing, the enemy's going to come against you. Um, and so Nehemiah struggles with that as well here, where the enemy kind of comes up and in some different threats and things, and it puts a halt in some of the building, uh, some things like that. But ultimately, the walls are. Accomplished. You know, they do manage to secure and wall in the city again. In chapters 8 through 10, we see Ezra come back into the picture and we see um, the spiritual renewal that takes place. And I'm going to focus in on those chapters a little bit here. But 11 through 13, we have dedication and an establishment of laws. Now, the thing I want you to understand is that a lot of what God does in the Ten Commandments and back all the way to Egypt and, um, what Moses would have learned, um, from that. Honestly, there was such a, archaeologically, there was such a meticulously detailed, logical, uh, structure from all the way back there in the laws of Moses in this initial covenant that honestly has influenced many governments in setting up their laws and their structures, okay? But one of the first things you need to do when you're reestablishing... A nation is to is securing borders and that kind of thing, but establishing law and rules and and bringing everybody under one code of this is how life works, and and this is what's okay and not okay, and you know it's the boundaries. I mean, we as families know that a, ba- a family without boundaries is chaos. A family without structure and rules and and things like that is just anarchy. It's chaos. We know that. We know that families need healthy boundaries. Well, countries need healthy boundaries too, just like, just, just like this. So the last of Jeremiah is establishing like that structure, so to speak. Okay. So I want to tune in for a bulk of today and just kind of open up to, um, I briefly mentioned some of this, but we're going to actually open up to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, the interesting thing about this is all of the people gather in the square in front of the water gate. And they ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Now, the law, the book of the law of Moses, that is that pentateuch, that first five books. And so that would have been what's being read. And so you know how long it took us to go through that in podcast form. Can you imagine just standing in front of the people for hours a day um, and just reading the word of God straight through? Um, And for some of these people, this is the first time they've ever heard God's word read. It's not like they had Bibles that could be passed out. I mean, this was, they were down to a few copies of the word of God. It takes It takes a profound amount of time in this day and in this time that we're talking right here with Ezra to make a copy of a scroll um, because of the attention to detail. And he was fully trained as a scribe. And we if you go back to some of those earlier podcasts, there's one that where I particularly talk about scribes and. Some of the information is from the scribes in the intertestamental period where they're making lots of copies of the Old Testament. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a lot of, um, of that is from the Maccabeans and they're copying of the scrolls. And so Ezra is a predecessor to those Jewish scribes. Um, and so he it's realistic to assume that he would have been one of the guys that would have been training either the ones that trained them or maybe even some of them directly. So just understand that Ezra came back and he would be training other people to copy the word of God. And so he would have had different criteria to make sure that it was copied accurately. Um, and so I think we probably, it's not reaching too far to assume that what we see when the Maccabees are are copying the word of God, those scribes um, would have been in some ways very similar to the standards that Ezra would have set for copying God's word. So I think that's reasonable. And probably a lot of that came out of Babylon and those wise men. and, you know, they would have been connected, even maybe possibly, to the libraries at Alexandria and some of the other educational places of the time. because remember, they they were making this mecca of uh, all things, architectural art, um, they, they would, I mean, this was just, it was one of the things that the wise men would have been responsible for. The, the you know, Daniel uh, and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they would have been some of the people that were responsible for what Ezra would have come out with. Anyway, okay, so I want you to understand that all of this is connected. Okay, that said... um, let's look a little bit more in depth one of the things that kind of happens here is so they're gathering um in the square from early morning until midday men women children everybody anybody who could understand all of the people were attentive to the book of the law so this is the first time they they've been 70 years born in captivity quite a few of them and they're finally home they finally have god's word in front of them and they are are literally standing in front of the newly built gate called the water gate the temple is is finally rebuilt they, they finally feel like they have that sense of identity And the word of God is being read out loud. For some of these guys, this is the first time they're hearing it. Um, And so there is a passion for this. All right, so verse 5 of chapter 8 says, "Uh, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all of them. And they had built kind of a podium or a platform so that he was up a little bit. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Okay, so we're not talking even sitting. They're standing for hours listening. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all of the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their faces, they bowed low and worshipped the Lord, their faces to the ground. Verse 7 says, And Jeshu, Bani, uh, you're going to have to forgive me, just a whole bunch of names. And they're pretty key people. Um, you see them in a couple other places throughout Nehemiah. but um, And the Levites now remember who's the Levites the Levites are the ones that are trained to be priests Um, so they are the tribe of Levi explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place and they read from the book of the law of God and translating it to give the sense so that they understood what they were reading so in other words they're not just reading it they're they're explaining it they're um, making it understandable Okay, verse 9, the Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people were weeping when they had heard the words of the law. Uh, Then he said to them, go eat of the fat and drink fat the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared for this day is holy to our God. Um, Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people and said, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink and to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words that had been made known to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers of the households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they may gain insights into the words of the law. Now, I want to point out something because the heads of the fathers of the households, um, what I want you to understand here is that there's some organization in this. And what you're getting at is in the Old Testament, especially the Torah, Um, In Deuteronomy, the fathers are instructed to teach their children. And so what you have here is you have a renewal of that. So you have the fathers of households being brought together and being trained to teach their families at home. And so... Verse 14, they found written in the law how the Lord commanded through Moses to the sons of Israel that they should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills, bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees, so that you can make booths just as it's written. Now, the interesting, this is the feast of booths. Um, This is celebrated in Israel and and, and quite frankly in a lot of Jewish communities even today. Um, But this is the reminder of when they were in the wilderness and they lived in tents, that their homes were, were temporary. Until God brought them into the promised land. And so, practicing the Feast of Booths is is also this idea of God tabernacling with his people. And so, there's a lot of ideas that kind of merge into this one. You got to understand the Jewish faith is very picture oriented, and so, images and pictures overlay. And so the feast of booth. A booth is a tent, essentially, except that in the feast of booth, it was branches that you built and you covered with. Anyway, anyway, you get the idea. And then you would feast and you invite people over, and it was this welcoming in but this also happened with the tabernacle being created and god dwelling with his people is this idea of god tabernacling with his people for eternity and so you have these merging of ideas that just kind of overlap these images um and so you have to bear that in mind when you read the old testament and you understand the jewish faith because images are the language of the people even their alphabet is pictorial it's pictures it's images and so, like, when you read things like Revelations, you've got to understand that we there's a lot of images, there's a lot of pictures. Um, and so all the way through Scripture, that is something that a Western mindset, an American mindset— we really struggle with because we're like, wait a minute, now we're talking in pictures. What's going on? You know, and a lot of times that's some of the struggle people have with the Bible is like, I don't get all these images. What's this beast thing over here? And then over here, you got this. And then all of a sudden, this is being talked about like this or like this or like this. I don't get it. Um, and so, to understand scripture, you have to understand the Jewish people and the amount of pictures that were used and imagery that was used to communicate thoughts, ideas, concepts, the nature of things. So, okay, that said, um, but this, this right here, this Feast of Booths, had not been celebrated since Joshua, the days of Joshua. Um, and so you have to understand that is all the way back to that very beginning of occupying the promised land and you know joshua spends his lifetime the first part of it is following moses and being his right hand and staying in the tabernacle of the lord after moses leaves staying in the presence of god and then when moses dies um and and he takes over he literally leads the occupation or the or do I want the entrance into the promised land, and so you know, basically you have the exiles coming back into the promised land and taking back territory. So there's a little bit of beauty in the the comparison going on here a little bit, but um, when. Joshua leads the people in. You've got the battle of Jericho and Ai, the the failure at Ai, and and, and just that entire journey to come into the land and occupy the land to make it theirs. Um, and a lot of that had to do with um, chasing out the occupants of the land in front of them and, and just really clearing the land to be separate, to be holy before the Lord, um, which actually... That charge that God had given them was never fully carried out. And so because it was never carried out, there's a lot of consequences. Um, you know, just people, remnants of nations in the land that have caused problems for generations because of what's happened. And we actually see some of those consequences, I think, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah where they understand that they have married into um, you know, people from other places. And, um, and so, you know, we have people confessing their sins before the Lord in chapter 9. Um, just kind of this idea. But uh, the interesting thing here, I want to back up just a little bit. Uh, basically you have the Feast of Booths and you have these people. So let's pick up at 17 in chapter 8. The entire assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel indeed had not done so since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. So there was great rejoicing. Um, And he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. They celebrated the the Feast of Um, for seven days and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the tradition or the ordinance Um, so on the 24th day of the month the sons of israel assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and dirt upon them now that would have been a sign of getting right before the lord it was uh, grief or mourning over your sin. Sackcloth and ashes was a sign of distress, of mourning, of um, repentance. It was just kind of this bundled idea. And again, it's that imagery. Um, it's the picture. And so, like, modern-day Jews will actually rip their clothing and their garments at a funeral um, in kind of that imagery of the sackcloth and ashes. And so... You'll see that even in modern day, that that imagery is still carried over and followed through uh, in traditional Hebrew culture. Okay, so moving on into chapter nine, you know, there's this sense of grief. They're in sackcloth and ashes. They um, stood in their place and they read from the book of the law uh, of their God for the. F- fourth of the for a fourth of the day and another fourth of the day they confessed and worshiped. basically this is like a huge church service um, uh, but uh, quite frankly one that would um, send most of us I think complaining <laughs> at the sheer volume and the intensity of what it is. Um, one I don't think anybody in this day and age is really used to standing for that period of time and listening to God's word being read um, or a sermon. Um, and then to sit and sing for that long. I don't think we have an idea. But anyway, you know, usually we do our two or three songs, right? Um, but I think heaven is going to be an amazing place, isn't it? I can't wait for worship in heaven. Okay, so in any case, that kind of brings us through. Um, there's, there's a lot of promises that they make. There's a lot of things that they do. Um, wives are put uh, literally like uh, those that have married into... Um, other cultures and stuff. There's a lot of things that we would really struggle with if we're coming at this with our mindset. We have to come at this with a Jewish mindset of occupying a land and really purifying themselves as a nation. Um, And so I think it's important to keep some of the things that we see happen in their context. Um, In any case, so you have uh, chapter 12, there's dedication of the wall, procedures for the temple, those kinds of things. Um, you have in chapter 13, the the honoring of the Sabbath is restored. Um, this is where you, in 20, verse 23, you also get those mixed marriages that aren't permitted. In any case, so you can kind of see them come back home, settle in, establish themselves as a nation, and purify and bring hearts back to the Lord. It's that... Um, faithfulness to the covenant trying to follow hard after what god has established Um, and so honestly we kind of have the same dilemma probably back then as what we do now is that there were still some that were looking at this going yeah but what about this and 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 you know that there's such a high price to put yourself in alignment with the word of god and honestly don't we have that today that if we're truly walking and calling sin what God calls sin, there's a cost, um, and that cost is climbing because there's a world that wants, that wants to be allowed to do what is right in their own eyes, and they don't want somebody telling them that something's not okay. Um, and so to stick to the faithfulness of God's word, it's going to start costing us. Um, and so my heart for these is to really um, prepare you for those costs when you face them, so that you know God's word and you know, um, you know where the falling away is and where the faithful will walk. Hopefully, you have found it fascinating or at least um, engaging to to realize kind of the history of Israel being able to come home after being exiled to Babylon, kind of how that all plays out, and we're setting up a timeline for. Um, that silence right before God sends his own son so we'll see you next time and we will be diving into the book of Esther um, where we are going to talk about the whole (laughs) Megillah and if you don't know what a Megillah is I will explain it to you next week to transitional design, then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.